you're a Christian, you've been saved in hope. Hope is something that we look for in the future. We haven't received it. It's the eyes of faith that see over the horizon to the promises that God has given us in Jesus Christ. And if you're a Christian, you know that your hope is certain because the Word of God is true. And your hope does not disappoint because the Holy Spirit has been poured out into your heart and He fills your heart with the love of God in Christ. And because your hope is certain, you may rejoice even in your trials. We live in a veil of tears. We're going to face trials from the moment of our birth to the day that we gasp our last breath. But even in our trials, we who have been saved in hope may exult in hope in the glory of God. For a Christian, the best is yet to come. If you're not a Christian, you need to come to Christ. Because for you, this is the best, this is as good as it's going to get. But for a Christian, this is as bad as it's going to get, because the best is yet to come. Now, if you live in light of this truth, if you can say that I know whom I have believed, then you of all people are most blessed. And therefore you mean it when you sing, How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent word. What more can He say to you? He hath said, You who unto Jesus for refuge have fled. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth, Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide, Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, Blessings all mine with ten thousand beside. Can you say that this morning? Is that true of you? Those who hope in the Word of God, hope in the God of the Word who cannot lie. That Word is strong medicine. It revives our drooping spirits. That Word promises those who trust God new strength. Mound up with wings as of eagles. We can run and not get tired. We can walk and not be weary. We live in difficult, challenging days. Hope keeps our focus upon the Lord where it belongs. Hope cures our preoccupation with ourselves and our circumstances by fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and sustainer and finisher of our faith. This hope strengthens our assurance that our labors are not in vain in the Lord. It enables us to fight the good fight of faith. Brethren, the Bible teaches that happy are the hopeful. But hope doesn't cheer our hearts only. If you're a a, a Christian, if hope exudes from your life, it gladdens the hearts of others who fear the Lord. It encourages their hope in God's Word. I invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to the 119th Psalm. I'm going to begin reading at verse 73. Down to verse 80. 
Verse 74 is going to be the focus of our attention this morning. Jumping right in at verse 73, David writes, Thy hands made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn thy commandments. May those who fear thee see me and be glad, because I wait for, I hope for thy word. I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are righteous, and that in faithfulness thou hast afflicted me. O may thy loving kindness comfort me according to the word to thy servant. May thy compassion come to me that I may live, for thy law is my delight. May the arrogant be ashamed, for they subvert me with a lie but I shall meditate on thy precepts. May those who fear thee turn to me, even those who know thy testimonies. May my heart be blameless in thy statutes, that I may not be ashamed. Look back at verse 74. May those who fear Thee see me and be glad because I wait for thy word or I hope in thy word. Now meditate upon that, that statement. What does it imply? It implies that a Christian's hope is visible. Other people can see it. May those who fear thee see me and, gl and be glad what can they see in me? They see that I wait for, I hope, in your word. Our faith can be seen. If you're a Christian, it will be obvious to other people that you're different, and you're different because of the grace of God in your life. In fact, David teaches here that hope is infectious. The hopeful Christian rejoices the hearts of others who fear the Lord. May those who fear thee see me and be glad, because I wait for thy word. What we learn from this passage is this, that a Christian that hopes in God's word gladdens others who fear the Lord. A Christian who hopes in God's word gladdens others who fear the Lord. Now to draw out David's meaning here in this statement, we're going to enlarge upon a few simple observations from our text in its immediate context. Well, the whole context is the, the 119th Psalm, but we're going to look at these eight verses. There are other verses in this Psalm and others in the writings of the, of the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, say, pick me. But we're just going to focus our attention upon these eight verses. And may the Lord be pleased to bless our contemplations by strengthening our hope, by gladdening our countenances, and thereby enabling us to be helpers of our brethren's joy in the Lord and to encourage their hope in Christ. So this morning we're going to look at the character qualities of a Christian 
who gladdens his brethren. The character qualities of a Christian who gladdens his brethren. Now, it's generally accepted, as I stated earlier, that David is the author of the 119th Psalm. It breathes his spirit. You read the other Psalms that are plainly attributed to him. This 119th Psalm certainly speaks of the spirit of David who loved the Word of God. He lived to obey the Word of God. He obeyed the Word of God because he knew it pleased the God of the Word. And when we read the record of David's life in the books of Samuel and Chronicles, we quickly learn that the good king did not have an easy life. Yes, he lived in the, in the palace in Jerusalem. He sat upon the throne, but he didn't have an easy life. In fact, quite the contrary is true. And even before he ascended to the throne of Israel, David faced bitter persecutions from Saul and then wars with rival nations and even troubles in his own family. David was surrounded by trial and trouble. David alludes to such enemies in verse 78, and also in verses 84 through 87. How many are the days of thy servant? When wilt thou execute judgment on those who persecute me? The arrogant have dug pits for me, men who are not in accord with thy law. All thy commandments are faithful. They have persecuted me with a lie. Help me. They almost destroyed me on earth. But as for me, I did not forsake thy precepts. So that he might persevere amidst his enemies, David continually sought God's sustaining grace. Look at verse 88. Revive me according to thy loving kindness so that I may keep the testimonies of thy mouth. And I suggest to you, the fact that God answered David's prayer for revival made him the kind of Christian who gladdened the hearts of those who feared God. He was continually revived in his hope as he opened the word of God and his promises spoke counsel and comfort to David's souls. And others could see that. God doesn't intend our religion, brethren, to be private. That it's just to be kept within ourselves. We're to live it before the world. We're to testify to the grace of God in the way that we live. David assumes this. From David's experience, we learn that we may be helpers of others' joy even while we are facing trials ourselves. We we should not expect... You know, the sun to be shining over us and balmy breezes at our backs to live the kind of Christian life that is worthy of imitation, that encourages other people to run in the way of God's commandments. Let me ask you, can you think of anyone better qualified to excite hope in you than one whose hope burns brightly even while he lives under the dark cloud of difficult circumstances? He beams brightly under that cloud. What makes this guy tick? Of course, we cannot but think of the Lord Jesus Christ. He'd set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. He had a certain look upon his face that made the disciples troubled as he marched toward the cross. 
And with the cross looming before him, we see David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's in the upper room. He's encouraging his distressed disciples. They know something's up. They don't really know what's going to happen. But they see their troubled Lord experiencing joy and peace. And he writes, or he says, and John records in chapter 16 and verse 33 of his gospel, These things I have spoken to you, these words, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, because I have overcome the world. Now as we consider the character qualities of a Christian who gladdens his brethren, two points this morning. First, first of all, a Christian that gladdens his brethren by his hope in God's word manifests various virtues. There are certain things that are true about him. Notice six such virtues. First of all, a gladdening Christian is content with the way God made him. If you're going to gladden others, you have to live in contentment of the way that God made you. In the 139th Psalm, David bowed before God in wonder and praise that he was the personal product of God's handiwork. That he was the special object of God's thoughts. Turn over, if you would, if you're in Psalm 119 to Psalm 139. If you have Notes in your hand, this is in the handout. For thou didst form my inward parts, David says to God. Thou didst weave me in my mother's womb. He wasn't just a blob. No, God was forming and fashioning him. I will give thanks to thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are thy works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from thee when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written, the days that were ordained for me when there was yet not one of them. God had marked out every day of David's life, even as he was being formed, and even in eternity before God began to form David in his mother's womb. How precious also are thy thoughts to me, O God. Do you ever think that God, do you ever think about that, that God thinks about you? If you're his child, there's a smile on his face through Jesus Christ. You are his special son or daughter. How precious also are thy thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I am awake, or when I awake, I'm still with thee. You see the good king as he pondered the God who ordained his days and who knit him together in his mother's womb. He was lost in wonder, love, and praise. As he pondered God's 
intimate knowledge and personal involvement in his life, informing him, in arranging all the details of his life before he, he drew his first breath, his breath was taken away at the mere thought of that. How can such knowledge not fill one's heart with cheerfulness, with contentment, and with expectation of good from a God like this? Sadly, some believers seem ever ready to complain about the way God made them and ordered their lives, carping about their health or their limitations or their providential circumstances. Sadder yet is that grumbling saints cannot be helpers of their brethren's hope. And I think there is such a thing as Eeyore professing Christians. You just can't seem to cheer them. They're in a persistent funk all the time. They always seem readier to sigh than to sing. And for this reason, you may even find yourself purposefully avoiding them. I hope that's not you. I hope that's not me this morning. What may be worst of all is that grumbling saints tempt others to join them in their complaints. Complaining is very infectious. It caught on through two million people in the wilderness. and God ended up destroying a whole generation for their complaining. We tend to think of complaining as not even a sin at all, or if it is, it's very slight. God doesn't look at it that way. On the other hand, grateful, cheerful Christians have a way of encouraging joy in their brothers and sisters. What they know in their heart, they confess with their mouth and show on their countenance that their heavenly Father knows best that He does all things well and that He is working all things, even these dark and difficult trials, for their good. They're able to look beyond the trial to the God who sent it. You enjoy them. You seek their cheerful company. In fact, you always seem to go away with, with a quickness in your step when you spend time with such Christians. You caught something of their joy. And if their contentment, at least, if it doesn't breed your contentment, at least it dampens your grumbling. How powerful is the impact of a cheerful sufferer? Such a Christian encourages us to be content with God and His dealings in our lives, and it shames us for our complaints. So the first virtue of a Christian that gladdens his brethren is that he's content with the way that God made him. Secondly, he trusts the God who afflicts him. We see this in verses 75 and 76. The whole Bible teaches that affliction is an effective teacher. We don't like to be receptive learners, do we? But it's an effective teacher. We best learn to trust the Lord in the crucible of trial. David confessed, in faithfulness thou hast afflicted me. He didn't say in anger or in hatred. He said, in faithfulness thou hast afflicted me. Listen to Mr. Spurgeon, a man who himself was no stranger 
to affliction from the hand of God. Spurgeon writes, Because love required severity, therefore the Lord exercised it. It was not because God was unfaithful that the believer found himself in a sore strait, but for just the opposite reason, it was the faithfulness of God to his covenant which brought the chosen one under the rod. It might not be needful that others should be tried just then, but it was necessary to the psalmist, and therefore the Lord did not withhold the blessing. Our Heavenly Father, Spurgeon says, was no Eli. He will not suffer his children to sin without rebuke. His love is too intense for that. The man who makes the confession of this verse is already progressing in the school of grace and is learning the commandments. End of quote. Heart-gladdening Christian is one who has learned to kiss God's smiting rod. We know such Christians, don't we? They're afflicted financially, they're afflicted physically, and yet they can speak nothing but good about God. They're happy in the midst of unhappy circumstances. They may be struggling with, with cancer, or some kind of financial reversal, but the joy of the Lord is their strength. Hope exudes from their every pore. Yes, they have dark days and difficult times, but the pre predominant disposition in their lives is, is one of hope and joy. The world knows nothing of this. In fact, we know nothing of it until we begin to experience it in ourselves. We know that it's true in others, but it's better caught than taught. We, when we experience it ourselves, we know the reality of it. And we know what makes that brother tick, and what makes him tick is the goodness of God. Seasoned, suffering saints shame us for our petty complaints against God, forgetting that he afflicts us for our good. David knew that God chastened him, that he might grow in godliness. Verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep thy word. Verse 71, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn thy statutes. And we see in verse 75, I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are righteous, and that in faithfulness thou hast afflicted me. And David says, in effect, if he hadn't afflicted me, he wouldn't be faithful. But in his faithfulness, he afflicted me. David knew that God chastened him, that he might grow in godliness. A Christian who doesn't complain, but instead defends, even kissing God's chastening hand, advertises his contentment with the Lord in, in all of his dealings in his life. Oh, may God increase that tribe. May we be numbered among them. Such contentment under trials encourages others to trust in the Lord and to be glad in God. Thirdly, a gladdening Christian depends upon God's mercy to sustain him. You see, the gladdening Christian is the dependent Christian. His testimony that God never fails him inspires others to experience the gladness that comes from depending upon the Lord. Lord, in myself I can do nothing. 
I need you. I need you every hour, even as we sung earlier. David's trials often brought him close to death, and so he frequently sought God's tender mercies to sustain him so that he might live. And the good king testifies that he himself was powerless to go to God's mercies. God's mercies had to come to him. Did you catch that? May thy compassion, may thy mercies come to me that I may live. I can't go and get them. You must come to me and give them. God's mercies always arrived, and they did so, as we would say, in a nick of time. How often have we not experienced this ourselves? The Christian who depends daily upon God's mercies is never disappointed. He finds those mercies that are that they're new every morning. Great is God's faithfulness. The dependent Christian, gladdened by God's mercies, emboldens others to ask for them themselves, especially those who are facing such trials. See, the Bible teaches that happy are the dependent. No one ever trusts God in vain. God delights to meet their needs. Fourthly, a gladdening Christian asks God to shame his enemies. In verse 78, May the arrogant be ashamed, for they subvert me with a lie. Dear ones, settle it in your minds that if you're a Christian, you're going to have enemies in this world. Your Savior did, and so will you. You cannot belong to the Lord and not be hated by those who hate God. You're associated with Him. And therefore, they who hate Him hate you because you represent Him in this world. And if you're following Christ like your Lord, you'll be hated without a cause. You'll be hated for the very things you should be honored. If you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, you will suffer some measure or manner of persecution. In praying for God to shame his, shame his enemies, David may have been asking for God either to judge them or to convert them. Commentators don't know for sure. Listen to Mr. Gill. He says, these are the same persons he before speaks of as accursed who had him in derision and forged a lie against him, here he prays that they might be ashamed of, the of their scoffs and jeers, of their lies and slanders, the evils and injuries they had done him, that they might be brought to a sense of them and repentance for them, when they would be ashamed of them in the best manner, or that they might be disappointed of their ends in what they had done and be so confounded and ashamed as men are when they cannot gain their point or be brought to shame and confusion eternally. Well, I believe David had the desire of his Lord. He'd rather see them converted than condemned. However God chooses to shame our enemies, we should rejoice in God's kindness and fetch fresh courage 
we should do so that others may see. We should be glad because the victory of one Christian is the victory of all Christians. Why? Because we're members of one another. We rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. We're all one body, members of the same. We're not private Christians. We're not a bunch of lone rangers, mavericks, just running around disconnected from other Christians. Or Certainly we should not be. Let us pray that God's powerful hand would be upon our enemies, but especially upon the enemies of our soul, our sins, that we may do victory, victorious warfare against them. Fifthly, a gladdening Christian seeks fellowship with the friends of God. We see this in verse 79. May those who fear thee turn to me, even those who know thy testimonies. Now notice, brethren, again, that David's religion is not private. It's public. It's organic. It's united with other believers. David didn't allow his trials to isolate him from other Christians and to insulate him from their fellowship. It's true that a trial shared is half a trial, even as a joy shared is twice a joy. And because the church is a body, the concern of one becomes a concern of all. Shared trials, helping others to bear their burdens, especially those who suffer for the cause of Christ, that deepens our bonds of love and strengthens our fellowship with our brothers and sisters. It's no wonder that Christians who isolate themselves from other believers, like a log removed from a fire, cool in their love for Christ and their zeal for His glory and become a burden rather than a blessing to other Christians. Brethren, we need each other all the time and especially when we are facing challenges to our faith and and to our perseverance in the Christian life. We're not to go off in some corner and lick our wounds. And I say this and I think you'll understand that we're to get together with others so that they may lick our wounds. And that we may lick theirs. Like musk oxen who encircle the young and the weak to protect them from wolves, we need the help of other stronger believers in our hour of weakness if we're to survive spiritually. We are our brother's keeper. David knew this, so should we. Sixthly, a gladdening Christian strives to walk blamelessly before God. See this in verse 80. May my heart be blameless in thy statutes, that I may not be ashamed. Holy Christians gladden the hearts of their God-fearing brethren. It is the compromised Christian that burdens the hearts of his godly brothers and sisters. Brethren, this should come as no surprise. The godly are good goads in the sight of God, God's people, urging them onward to hope and happiness and glory. As a holy man, David sought to obey God's law in all things. 
He feared falling into sin. He feared bringing reproach upon God's name. He feared discouraging God's people. As a man after God's heart, he wasn't content with mere outward conformity to God's law as hypocrites are. They just want an outward show of religion. David knew that true religion begins in the heart and it, it exudes outward through the life. David wasn't consent or content with the husk of holiness. He sought the kernel. He strove to obey God's law with a blameless heart. He wanted the root of the matter to be truly deep in Christ in him. Spurgeon paraphrases David's prayer in verses 79 and 80. He says, Make thy children willing to help me and to be helped by me. Let me be a magnet to gather good company, not a broom to sweep them away. May I cultivate love and promote unity, yet not at the expense of truth. Therefore do I pray. See, a holy Christian walks in sincere evangelical obedience before God. And he will exert a magnetic influence upon others who fear the Lord. Solomon refers to it as iron, sharpening iron. We hone each other's holiness as we spend significant time in the presence of God with our brethren. Let me ask you, are you, am I such a person? Ask yourself, does my life demonstrate an attractive holiness that gladdens the godly? Or does it cause them grief? So a Christian that gladdens his brethren by his hope in God's word manifests various virtues. Notice, secondly, a Christian that gladdens his brethren hopes in God's word. This is the foundation of those virtues. What was it about David's hope in God's word that was visible to his God-fearing brethren in Israel that brought joy to their hearts. What does David himself say about his hope in the word of God, the word for which he waited? In Psalm 119 and verse 43, David prayed that the word of God in which he hoped would always be on his tongue. And do not take thy word, or the word of truth, utterly out of my mouth, for I wait for thine ordinances. Further, David prayed that the Lord would keep his covenant promise in which, in which he hoped. Psalm 119, verse 49. Remember the word to thy servant in which thou hast made me hope. I think he's talking about the promise that God gave to him to have a seed. Furthermore, God's word taught David to hope in God's salvation, whether that salvation he needed was temporal or eternal. Psalm 119.81, My soul languishes for thy salvation. I wait or I hope for thy word. David hoped in God's word as his defense and hiding place. Verse 114, Thou art my hiding place and my shield. I hope for, or I wait for thy word. I run to you and I hope for your word. Deliver me. So dependent was David 
upon God's help that he sought him early each day in his word. Psalm 119, verse 147. I rise before dawn. David says, I, as it were, set my alarm clock. I get up early. I, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I need help every day, Lord. So as it were, where he runs to the place, he's going to meet God early, even before the sun comes up. And he seeks God's help in his word. And God didn't disappoint him. He never waited and God didn't show up. He opened his word and he found God there. Furthermore, for David, hoping in God's word was synonymous with hoping in God himself. Psalm 130, verse 5. I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. You see, when we come to the written word, we meet Jesus, the living word. Jesus said, my words are spirit and they are life. It's not a dead letter when the Spirit of God applies it to our hearts. Like nectar to a bee, David's hope in God's word attracted the God-fearing in Israel. They could see that God's word directed his steps as a lamp to his feet and a light to his path. It was evident that he treasured that word in his heart as a deterrent from sin. It was clear that God's word was his delight since it was his meditation all the day that walking by its directives kept him from every false way, that that word revived his drooping soul, sustained him in trials, strengthened him in seasons of grief, and produced reverence for God. All these things David experienced because he hoped in the word of God. David's hope in God's word cheered other believers precisely because he was cheered by its powerful effects in his own life. I want what you have, David. How do I get it? David said, let me tell you how, right here. Professing Christian, do you wonder why you're weak? It's because you don't feed upon the bread of God. One who hopes in God's word will, to one degree or another, demonstrate these same qualities. Likewise, hope in the word of God produce these visible effects in the hearts of the God-fearing in David's day, and so will they in our day, in you and in me. Notice how David describes himself as one who hopes in God's word. Notice six things very quickly. First of all, one who hopes in God's word is humble and teachable. We see this in verse 73. Thy hands made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding. I'm ignorant. I'm stupid. I'm dumb as a fence post. Give me understanding that I may learn thy commandments. You see, hopeful Christians are teachable Christians. They don't trust in their own wisdom. They seek wisdom at its source. They go to their creator. How attractive is a humble, teachable spirit in any man? It's a rare gem. We don't see it so much in our proud day. It is precious in all people, but it is especially precious in powerful people, as David was. Psalm 110, or 11, verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, 
a good understanding have all those who do his commandments. Teachable, obedient Christians cheer the hearts of other God-fearing Christians. Secondly, one who hopes in God's word trusts God amidst his afflictions. One who hopes in God's word is convinced that God is right in all that he does, that, as we saw before, that he afflicts his people in faithfulness. And because David believed that his afflictions were prescribed by God, he found comfort from the God who afflicted him by meditating upon his word. His afflictions didn't drive him from the word of God. It drew him to the word of God. It doesn't say I don't want anything to do with this word because it comes from the God of this word. It was I want to learn what God has to teach me in this. So those afflictions didn't drive David from God, but drew him to the Lord. When we, read in ver- when we read verse 74 in the light of verses 75 and 76, we're reminded that God comforts his afflicted people so that they might comfort their afflicted brethren. Paul saw the benefit of his own afflictions and God's comfort in them as a means to encourage other Christians. I've experienced these trials and troubles, and God has sustained me, and I wish to be a conduit to pour comfort, a conduit for God to pour comfort into the lives of others. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We've received the comfort. We want God to pour His comfort through our lives into the lives of other troubled Christians. See, God has a greater purpose in your struggles, your trials, and your difficulties than just to show His faithfulness to you, but to show His faithfulness to others through you. That's what Paul's saying here. He comforted you, He'll comfort them too. How compelling is the sight of a suffering Christian comforted by the God who has afflicted him. Brethren, let me say it again, the world knows nothing of this. It's an enigma to them. They can't figure it out. What kind of people are these? They're experiencing the lash of difficult trials, figuratively or literally, and they're still smiling and they're trusting God, and they haven't sucked their fist in God's face and cursed Him? The Lord is given and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm sorry, that's a language I can't understand. Of course you can't, because you have to know the Lord. You have to experience saving grace for those syllables to align in such a way as you can understand them and kiss the God who said them. Such a view of grace gladdens the people of God. It teaches them that they may suffer victoriously also under the good hand of God. Thirdly, one who hopes in God's word delights in his law See this in verse 77. May thy compassions come to me that I may live, for thy law is my delight. David says, I want to live to obey your law. Cause your compassion to come wave upon wave that I may live so that I may obey you. 
David says, don't just send me your compassions that I may live, but that I may live to serve. That's what he's saying here. And brethren, this is the heartbeat of all true Christians. Those who delight in God, delight in His law. They find obedience sweet because obeying God's law means obeying the God that they love. You don't obey as an evangelical. You don't obey in a way that pleases God, God's law in abstraction from obeying Him who sent His law. That's legalism. That, that doesn't make sense to anybody. No wonder they don't do it. They see it as oppressive, not as an act of devotion. The hypocrite, you see, knows nothing of David's desire. Grudging compliance to God's commandments is not gospel obedience. No wonder it's so difficult, painful, and oppressive. You're not running in the way of God's commandments on the feet of gospel obedience. Delight in God's law and a life of evangelical obedience to His commandments gladdens the hearts and encourages the hope of all true Christians. If he can do it, I can do it. He does it by the grace of God, and so can I. Fourthly, one who hopes in God's word finds, finds it his preoccupation. Verse 78. May those, verse 78, may the arrogant be ashamed, for they subvert me with a lie, but I shall meditate on thy precepts. I'm going to get them out of my mind, and I'm going to fill my mind with you, Lord. I can't do anything that's pleasing to you and I'm distracted by what they're doing to me. You see, David didn't focus upon his trials or upon his enemies, but he viewed them through the lens of God's word and it all made sense to him then. His troubles made him God-focused instead of self-focused. And having pleaded with God to put his enemies to shame, David gave himself to serving the Lord. I leave them with you. You've given me things to do. He left these things with God and focused his attention upon his responsibility, and that was to do the will of God. Don't let me be distracted by these things, Lord, because you've called me to a higher purpose than that. This kind of undistracted devotion to the Lord amidst difficult trials gladdens the hearts of the God-fearing. He can do it. I can do it. He does it by the grace of God. Lord, give me your grace that, that I may run in the path of obedience. It serves as a good example. It shows others that they can do cheerfully sir, in serving the Lord what I'm able to do by the grace of God, even under adversity. These aren't roadblocks. God, give me grace to jump over them. My eye is ahead, not behind. And of course, the great exemplar of this was our Lord Jesus Christ. It was for the joy set before Him. And that joy was on the other side of the cross. The joy set before Him that He endured the cross and treated its shame with contempt and is now seated at the right hand of God the one who is the author and finisher of our faith, the one to whom we're to look and to run after in the Christian life. Furthermore, one who hopes in God's word seeks similar companionship. Verse 79. 
May those who fear thee turn to me, even those who know thy testimonies. Godly, obedient, Bible-loving believers desire fellowship with such like-minded brethren. David delighted in the company of such, as one man writes, that they may be his friends, his companions, his supporters, that they may learn from his example to trust in God. David's delight was not in the great, it was in the godly. Not in the haughty, but in the holy. Not in those who simply knew their Bibles, but those who lived their Bibles. Psalm, 1, or Psalm 16, verse 3, David says, As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. They're the excellent of the earth. Finally, one who hopes in God's word strives to maintain a good conscience. Verse 80. May my heart be blameless in thy statutes. Not may I just merely appear good, but may I be good from the inside out by your grace. He knew he couldn't be sinless, but he wanted to be blameless. He kept short accounts with God, continually confessing his sin, repenting of his sin, so he could have a blood-washed, blameless conscience. This, the hopeful Christian demonstrates by his humble, trusting obedience to God's word is the rule of his life and by his frequent, frequent and frank confessions of sin. You see, David knew the true obedience begins in the heart and his heart must be kept holy if his walk would be holy. And David's obedience flowed out of such a heart. prayer of every true believer is that he might not prove at the end to be a hypocrite. That his life would not contradict his doctrine. David prayed that his life would mirror what he believed. That his orthodox creed would issue in an orthodox life. That he would behave what he believed. He would live what he learned. He wouldn't be an apparent Christian. He'd be a real Christian. Without this confidence, he could not have prayed, May those who fear thee turn to me, even those who know thy testimonies. Well, brethren, God-fearing Israelites were attracted to David's personal integrity as a man with a sensitive conscience who was careful to live what he believed. The question we have to ask ourselves, can that be said of you? Can that be said of me? Do we have a religion Without its power? Do we have a name that we're alive but we're dead? Are we real and genuine? Are we fakes and phonies? Three points of concluding application very quickly. First of all, behold the great privilege of exuding a hope that gladdens the godly. Behold the great privilege of exuding a hope that gladdens the godly. That they may fear thee when they see me, they'll be glad because I wait for God's word. Brethren, God intends that we be helpers in each other's hope. God doesn't intend that we live to ourselves. 
Let me ask you, how are you gladdening other Christians by your life and witness? Is it, is it a life filled with the word of God? Do you desire to be an encourager of other Christians? Secondly, where does your hope need strengthening so that you may better gladden the godly? We're all weak. We have blind sides. We have defects and deficiencies. Let me ask you, what virtues of a gladdening Christian need brightening in your life? Are you close enough to other Christians to encourage their hope? Or do you just kind of live unto yourself? What changes in your life are necessary? What changes in mine? I have to preach this to myself before I preach it to you. And I'm weighed in the balances and found wanting, preaching it again to myself. And I think we're cut from the same cloth, are we not? Finally, do you possess the hope that gladdens the godly? You can't gladden the godly unless you have this hope, and you can't have this hope unless you're trusting in Christ. The Bible refers to, to Christ Jesus as our hope. And it also says that if you're not a Christian, that you are without God and without hope in this world. All your religion is just whistling in the dark if you don't have Christ. Jesus Christ is the hope of his people. Christ has come into this world that he may be your hope. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the Christmas story right there. He sent his son into this world to save us from our sins. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. He calls to all who are weary and heavy laden to come to him, to take his yoke upon them. Because gentle and lowly of heart, and they will find rest for their souls. He calls you to come to him, and he promises if you come to him, he will not, certainly not, never cast you out. Be honest with God and be honest with yourself. You need Christ. I need Christ. Christ has given himself so that we might be saved, not only from the wrath to come, but to live a happy and a hopeful life between this day and the time we gasp our last. Is this Christ your hope? Well, if he's not, may the grace of God enable you to make him your hope even this day. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would take the stammerings and stutterings of a mere preacher to communicate your perfect life-giving word. Lord, your words are spirit and they are life, and we pray that you would attend the spoken word with divine, life-changing power this day and sweep some into the kingdom of God, granting them the feet of faith and repentance to run to Jesus Christ and find him to be their help and their hope. And for those, the rest of us, who know you of a truth, we pray that we would be those that David described 
here, those who gladden others by their life of dependence upon your word. Lord, make us to be that kind of attractive people, magnets that draw in the godly as they see our hope that they're gladdened to run in the way of your commandments. Help us, we pray, to be such a people that we might go to heaven with one another as such a people. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.